Welcome to Out on a Limb, where traditional finance and the new digital economy converge with the sense of history. My name is Tim Enneking, and this is episode 44. Today is Tuesday, July 11th, 2023, and it's about 3.30 on the West Coast of the United States. A uh, number of topics today, varying, uh, varying scope. Most of them are brief and interesting as opposed to long and in-depth and hopefully interesting too. Uh, the first is uh, unemployment reading in the U.S. In, for June 2023. First, ADP came out with half a million increase in payroll and scared the bejesus, as my grandfather would say, out of everybody. Uh, at the very, very hot economy. Everyone was worried about the Fed uh, increasing interest rates, especially since it's threatening to do so twice, and panic set in for a couple of days until the next day, BLS, the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, came out and said, no, 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 unemployment went up 200K, which was actually uh, a little bit less than the average, still solid, but not lighting the economy from an inflation perspective on fire. Interestingly, more than half of that increase was in leisure and hospitality, which is really a, a post-COVID you know, reversion to the mean because leisure and hospitality really hit hard by COVID. And, and most restaurants, uh, hospitality, hotels and things are back open now. Uh, also, manufacturing lost 42,000 jobs, which given you know, the things like reshoring and supply chain issues where people want to shorten supply chains and bring manufacturing back to the U.S. is not a particularly good long-term sign, although it's not directly or in the short term, even indirectly related to inflation. And then the, the most interesting statistic was one you had to dig for. The average number of hours worked dropped to 30.5, 34.5. And that number actually uh, is an odd number. It's actually quite low. Usually people get laid off when the number gets down so low, but people are not being laid off now because there is still a general uh, shortage of employees. And so what employers are doing now is holding on to people longer so they don't have to uh, seek them out when there's an upturn. But it really uh, is not going to get a little bit, get much lower. It really can't. So overall, with the employment not being in half a million and 200,000, the number of workers or working hours dropping, it was actually a positive uh, set of statistics for, for from inflation purposes. Unfortunately, probably not positive enough to present, prevent another rate increase, but we'll talk a little bit about a little bit more about that later. Another interesting statistic, and this is topic number two, is used car prices. Now, normally you'd think that used car prices is pretty much an obscure statistic, but as some of you may recall, over the last 12 to 18 months, there have been times where used cars have been more valuable than new cars. Uh, my brother, in fact, leases a car, and he, he took a, I guess, Honda up on their, on their offer. He turned in a year-and-a-half-old lease car, got a brand-new car, and paid less on a monthly basis, and is just ecstatic with the deal. June, year, year, uh, June used car prices, sorry, month-to-month month dropped 4.2%. And year to year, they dropped 10.3%. Now, that's the largest drop in history for June. June is usually a, a pretty hot month for uh, used cars because of uh, the summer months and people having to move around and, and just doing such purchases when the weather is nice. And it's one of the largest drops ever for any month 
in history. So since used car prices were really a hot spot of inflation, the fact that they've now fallen more than 10% year on year is, is actually very good news for the Fed. And notwithstanding some of the predictions that you'll, you'll see, and again, I, I harp on what I've been saying where people change their prediction every couple of weeks, that's really happening now. I'm sticking with my uh, no more interest rate hikes prediction. Uh, many people are, most people are predicting a hike this month at the end of July. Many people are also predicting September. I'm sticking with mine, not going to change it. I may well be wrong in July, we'll see. But I just don't think that uh, there's enough negative news really to justify it. And there's a lot of positive news that is, you know, in the second level of statistics, not in the first, such as used car sales, such as number of hours worked. So I'll stick very, very calmly and steadily with my prediction. Uh, the fourth point out of the seven is a bit of an odd historical statistic. Uh, many of you know that I have, have said that there are way too many banks in the United States. It just doesn't make sense for the United States to be the second largest company, a country rather, in terms of banks per capita. And as some of you may recall, the number one is Luxembourg and setting up banks as a cottage industry in Luxembourg. So for the entire OECD of all developed countries, the United States has more banks per capita than any of them. Usually the U.S. distribution mechanisms uh, and supply chains, et cetera, delivery mechanisms are more efficient than most other countries, which is why prices are so low here. It's a homogeneous country. Single language will get you across the entire country, and sometimes you want to add more, but just English will get you there, as opposed to in the EU, where to get 27 countries really thoroughly, you need about 35 languages. So it's much easier to distribute in the United States. Finance is also very, very electronic. So why is it that the United States now has 4.7 thousand banks, more than anybody on a per capita basis in Luxembourg? I've said that before, nothing new there. But what amazed me was in 2010, the United States had almost twice as many banks. There were 8,000 banks in the U.S. in 2010, which shocked me because you don't read a lot about bank mergers, right? You've got SBV and Signature Bank and a few other things and, and Silvergate, which closed. But to go from 8,000 to 4.7, that's 3,300 banks that were merged out of existence. Basically, in the background, really wasn't a, a topic one heard a lot about. There are always deals with banks, but that's a lot, and it cut the number about in half. What that tells me is there were mostly smaller banks that were consolidating, and now with the Fed thinking of lowering the most stringent reserve requirements from uh, assets of $700 billion down to $100 billion, keeping in mind that, that um, uh, FRB uh, uh, down here in, in Southern California or in, in Central and Southern California and SVB were around the 250 threshold, which was an intermediate threshold. Now the concept is, okay, we're going to take all the requirements and drop them down to $100 billion. Because the reserve requirements are going to go higher and because the re reporting requirements are going to be much more extensive, that is obviously going to raise the cost structure of banks and more are going to have to consolidate. So I think I'll probably get my wish where the number of banks will be cut in half about roughly again. But the, the fact that 3,300 banks, banks have disappeared in the last 13 years, I found really surprising and actually quite positive. It's a good trend and we need more of it. The fifth point is, again, about, is about recession. So a little bit about what we're facing now because of inflation and the interest rate hikes. 
I was talking with, um, I believe it was Goldman Sachs today, regarding some quarterly reports for the family office that I run. And one of the things that occurred to me was about the recession that, that people have been predicting uh, with the famous aphorism that economists have predicted nine out of the last six recessions, uh, that's really what's happening now is everybody's going recession, 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 and instead the S&P goes up 200 points, still within a fairly narrow range, but positive and no recession. And what it occurs to me is that interest, when interest rates start going down, that is when we'll come out of a recession, and interest rates going down has probably been, I'm saying for most of this year, all of this year, Q1 of 2024 may slip a little bit, but not significantly. So what's happening is that the end of the recession, because interest rates will start going down certainly next year, the end of the recession is not moving further out, but the beginning of the recession is being delayed. So it occurs to me that the recession is being compressed. Its duration is being shortened. Call that a prediction, I suppose. I'm just, I don't think it's going to be as long as many recessions or most recessions have been in the past. Uh, interesting little stat just came up in a conversation or opinion, I suppose, came up in a conversation earlier today. Uh, the sixth and second last point is threads versus Twitter. Uh, everyone's trying to figure out what the threads, what the threads logo means. Uh, most people seem to think now it's an ampersand or maybe the outside. But anyway, um, the threads had a start that blew away the most optimistic uh, estimate, estimates of what would happen, including, including Zuckerberg's and Meta. Uh, 70 million people signed up for threads in two days. It's been now uh, available for five days. It's already at 100 million people. And what that tells you is not that Threads is fabulous, although it doesn't seem to be bad the little I played with it. It tells you that people are tired of Musk and Twitter. Uh, Twitter, la the last statistics they released were, was that it had 300 million uh, active users. I'm not sure about active daily users. We don't know anymore because it's a private company, so the results aren't released. But probably Twitter has lost some, and a lot of people that were active Assuming Threads lives up to any of its reputation, they will go to inactive. So at this rate, you could see uh, Threads actually overtake Twitter because some of those 100 million, or actually most of those 100 million are probably in that 300 million, and they're going to go from active to inactive. So I doubt the gap is 100 to 300. It's probably more like 100 to 225 at this point in time. Another 75 million people effectively switch, and it's equal to it. Uh, the, the active daily users will be equal. This goes to my Twitter prediction from much earlier this year. I said that the value would be halved and Musk will sell it, resell it. Uh, the value has clearly already been halved. Actually, the most recent uh, stock options have been issued at one-third of the price that Musk paid for it. And at some point in time, you know, Musk, as, as much as he's idiosyncratic and a bit strange, uh, is he's not as he's certainly not a dumb guy, and he's going to see that he's pouring more and more time and money into Twitter, and it's just not working. He may subsidize subsidize it for a while, and he's almost certainly going to have to start subsidizing it because uh, the debt load he's placed on it's only at seven billion dollars a year. Twitter has to generate in cash flow, and it's lost half of its advertisers. So that's just not happening. That extra money has to come from somewhere. Twitter is clearly worth something, and ironically, it's probably worth a lot more in anybody's hands but Elon Musk. 
So I'm still sticking to that prediction, and I think Threads has accelerated the second half of it. Uh, The seventh and last topic is Bitcoin halving. Uh, As some of you may know, but not everybody's familiar with it, uh, a number of years ago when Bitcoin was introduced, it was possible to earn about 25 Bitcoin for every block or every set of transactions that was solved. And there was a problem to solve that. It took a certain amount of computing power measured in hash rate to be able to solve those problems. At the beginning, it was fairly quick. It was fairly easy. And Bitcoin wasn't worth very much. The fourth such halving will take place next year. Now, there are a certain number of transactions which basically result in a four-year uh, four-year cycle. And at the current transaction rate, it will be April 26th of next year when the halving will take place. It's moving up shortly or moving up slowly as uh, more and more computing power is put into the Bitcoin network. But the number of Bitcoin you receive from each block, or I should say, and the number of Bitcoin will go from six and a quarter down to 3.125. Now that means you're actually paid less and miners are paid less. And the interesting thing is some people say, hey, because miners get less, the price has to go up to compensate the miners. It doesn't really. If the price doesn't go up, that means miners will leave the market and there will simply be fewer fewer BTC halved. As a practical matter, though, as an empirical matter, it does indeed seem, in fact, in the last four cycles or three, three price increases, having has resulted in a major increase in the Bitcoin price. And then it falls back after this jump. As a result, without exception, every four years, you have a slump in Bitcoin prices. Going backwards, that means last year, 2022, 2018, 2014, and 2020 is when it was just after it was started. So there was no halving yet at that point in time. And the years before, of, and just after the halving were actually quite good with the year after the halving actually being pretty spectacular. So you have phenomenal years in 21, in 17, and in 13, without exception. Now, there are, it's not like there are thousands of data points, but you've got a pretty strong cycle. So last year was negative. This year looks pretty good so far. Bitcoin's up about 70, 80%, depending on, on what exchange you use and what, and what exact time. Uh, but it, as it stands, when this price drops or when the rewards drops drop, what you're going to end up with is break-even decreasing. Now, there are two real costs of goods sold for uh, investing in mining, Bitcoin mining. One is electricity and the other is the rig that solves the problem to generate, generate the block rewards. And of the two of them, the far more variable one and the most important one is electricity. So generally when, generally when people discuss Bitcoin mining and where the break-even is, they don't talk about the price of Bitcoin. They talk about the cost of electricity in kilowatt hours. So right now the break-even, and it obviously depends on, on other variables to some degree, but the main, the, just in aggregate, the break-even for Bitcoin miners is 12 cents per kilowatt hour. And that's not bad. You can find 12 cent per kilo electricity in most places, not everywhere, but in a lot of places. But it's going to drop to six uh, on April 26th or slightly before or after next year. That gets hard because super cheap electricity is like three or four and it's basically not available. Six is also cheap electricity, not super cheap, but it's very, very good. 
And the estimate is that 40% of Bitcoin miners have higher costs. So their break even will be well above $30,000 per BTC. So as you can see, real economics kicks in if you ignore, even if you ignore the idea of, oh, well, the uh, uh, revenue is going to, or the break even is going to go down, so Bitcoin has to go up. It's not quite that simple. If the break even uh, goes, uh, of, of electricity goes down to six cents, and anyone above that loses money, and the Bitcoin price stays around 30,000, you could have massive numbers of miners leaving, hash power being drained to a very low level, and that would then cause Bitcoin to go up above 30K. And of course, that would entice miners back in if they, if they got out and if they can restart. So you're obviously going to have miners crossing their fingers and saying, no, 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 I'm going to keep mining because the price is going to go up because somebody else is going to stop mining. So it's a very interesting dynamic. Plus, I'm hardly the only one that's aware of that cycle. And so everyone is trying to front run that cycle, which is why you have a bit more bearish pressure in Bitcoin this time than you had in previous times, because people now are more familiar with it. The cycle has happened for three and a half times now. And you have institutional investors who are less prone to panic. So you see fewer or less volatility, fewer price spikes and drops in Bitcoin. You know, my, my tongue-in-cheek Enneking's Law, the profile of the average crypto investor changes every 18 months. And with that change comes a change in in optimal trading, trading behavior, market volatility, and other things. So now that you have a pretty firmly established institutional base, and everyone can see the sort of trends that I just described to you, I think that we will see the Bitcoin bear market earlier, or sorry, bull market earlier. And who knows, we might see the next bear market, which in theory will be in 2026, start a bit earlier as well. Uh, but the halving is now coming more and more into the news particularly since in October of this year, Mt. Gox is about to release the Bitcoin that have been frozen in Japan for 10 years. And that actually will put a bit of bearish pressure, if not from a substantive standpoint, from a psychological standpoint. Even if nobody sells, everyone's going to be afraid they're going to. So it'll be a very interesting October for a couple of weeks, but I don't think it's going to have a, any sort of long-term effect on Bitcoin prices or crypto prices whatsoever. So there you go, a bit of a smorgasbord of topics today, pretty much running the gamut. Hope you have a good week and have a great start to your summer. Thank you.